welcome to another episode of Pre-Wise DMs, the podcast for three dungeon masters. We've been doing this for way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. Well, I'm the type of guy who never settled down where pretty girls are. Well, you know that I'm around. I kiss them and I love them because to me they're all the same. I hug them and I squeeze them. They don't even know my name. They call me the Wanderer. Yeah, the Wanderer. I roam around, 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 around. And boy... Have you guys done that in the Woodstock Wanderers campaign? Holy shit. I thought we were talking about Fallout for a second, because that was the, the commercial from that. <laughs> that's true, really, actually. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Man, the folks at home can't see it, but Dave's background is, I believe, a Fallout village. That's what oh, it looks is like. that what that is? I don't know. I, I think just, that's I from the Fallout like, cool MMO village. in West Virginia. Yeah. Oh, okay. Some post-dystopian future. <laughs> it tells you how much video gaming I do. You know? Zero right now. Zero. So today, we have actually just wrapped up our our oldest running and longest running campaign uh, as, since 5e came out. That's the Woodstock Wanderers, the homebrew campaign that I have been uh, that I've been DMing. And we just had I want to say it's over. There's it's still over. some stuff we can wrap up. We can we can we can do more <laughs> sessions if anyone other people want to do. Dave, you done with it? You totally. Erasmus is going to do a keg stand. <laughs> I I know. Uh, I, I tell you the truth. I'm. Uh, we'll get into this more. No, I um. I think we hit. I think we hit the 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 final note on it. And like we we'll do like the epilogue session that could open up stuff for the for the future stuff. But like. I'm on your train though, Thor. Like I want to, I want to make new characters. I want a new setting. I want, you know, yeah. But we'll get into that. Yeah. So yeah, and this is the campaign that where we first learned Fifth Edition on, starting out in the cleverly named town of Woodstock because it was near a lot of wood. <laughs> a stock of wood. <laughs> it was kind of a lumbering and mining town, and yeah, they started off trying to chase down some kidnapped miners, and wound up finding out about this ancient primordial, you know, Lovecraftian being living inside the world. And since then, oh, and also uh, eventually found out that Strahd was hoping to capture that being by taking their world into his world so you kind of a dual threat situation here and you know they've basically spent the last uh two years 50 some sessions wandering around this this homebrew world of mine way more than two years dude that's been three dude we're no we're getting close to four we're getting close to four now yeah easily i mean think (laughs) about it right because strahd we've been doing for god what uh at least as long as the podcast now so at least like two years right Yeah. Um, two and a half. Yeah. So Woodstock, we have been crushing it, dude. We've been like critical role level, like three <laughs> year, 150 episode campaign. You know, oh, I, I made Erasmus in 2018. There you go. 2018. And Erasmus came in late in the game. He actually uh, replaced some other players. No. And the the, the other branch of that before oh, I mean, okay. the other Woodstock. Uh, actually, that is true that. uh I, th- I forget which. No, no, this game definitely happened before that game. But yeah, that was in the very. That was back in the in the very beginning, back when Erasmus wasn't a giant. Yeah. <laughs> I was just a giant nerd, even in that universe. 
So the party has spent the um, the last four years or so trying that to figure is... out how to either stop Gadanothba from erupting from the world and destroying it, how to stop the Malbion, this elven archmage who's been feeding its souls, trying to wake it up. And we just finally had, and also how you know trying to stop Strahd from taking over the world because you know many people who found out about Gadanothba felt like there was no hope, so maybe they should join Strahd. And he's still uh, still still around with his with his forces and his influence on the world. Mm. Yeah, and this past weekend was the final showdown with the Malbion and putting Gadanapa back to sleep for a thousand years. So guys, it's been a long, strange trip. What'd you think? Yeah, well, that final battle, all I gotta say is, wow. And so I, I just wanna throw out there, just generally speaking, how long would the two of you say that battle lasted? Um, I believe that battle lasted four hours. Mm-hmm. Right, four hours. Probably, yeah, four to, I'm going to say four to five. Because I was actually trying to pace it going into it because we, we were looking to play from like three to nine. And I put in uh, encounters to kind of get us like some quicker encounters to get us through a few hours. But I wanted this to be the biggest, hardest fight you guys have had all game. Like I wanted the big confrontation. Yeah, it was at least four hours. So to put this in boxing terms, it's like round 13. Okay. We've been fighting this guy for real time hours blows have been traded dealt people have fallen down gotten back up been thrown across the room fell down stayed down they're like a standing eight count he he eats an enormous critical from our paladin an enormous critical the biggest hit all freaking game like the screen shakes he hits him so hard (laughs) and i'm like i've got him he's out of legendary resistances power word stun suck it bitch and Thorne looks at me and goes, no, I'm sorry. He still has 150 more hit points left. <laughs> over, because uh, he needs 150 or less. He has over. At which points I removed my scouter and crushed it and said, over 150. <laughs> With that said, though, in all fairness, because he is the big bad. This guy is, and at this point we were level we're level 15. Uh, we leveled at the end of the game. You know, as we should have. You guys are level 17 now or 16? No, we're, we're 16 now He's at still the end. Still give us a level, right. and I'll take it. Yeah. But he was the big, bad guy. He was yeah. the guy that has been, I mean, you know, like, I cannot, I, I might have, as we've discussed in other times, I've had some issues with some of the other lieutenants and their power curve. But this guy, Thorin was absolutely, uh, spot on with it like this guy has been sacrificing people to this god that obviously gives you powers he is the big bad against a massive party uh we are seven people strong uh that's a lot that is a lot to uh to try to deal with behind the screen and he did it in a way that none of us have been able to pull off yet in any of our other campaigns in a satisfying way in my point where he made a solo boss dude and he even did it where he did the whole, like, uh, you know, little magic thing that gave you a full rest, which is a great mechanic. If you have your big bad boss, you want to have this big grueling battle up the levels to him. And then you get to him and something happens that gives you that full rest or something, some sort of like rejuvenation. Right. That was great. And even that we're full power. We're on the eighth level spells on this day bitch and he just takes it dude and and gives it back to us so no i mean i i thought that that battle was phenomenal i even accepted 
eating a power word kill to the fucking dome. He like, accepted it. <laughs> you know, I wasn't like I will say so. You were not. You weren't surly about it. Not visible I wasn't, surly. Now, yeah. I, it, all, all cards on the table. Was I a little pissed in a way? Yeah, because your character dies, and now I'm out of the battle watching it happen, and no one can yeah. get to me to raise me up. But that is absolutely part of what creates that level of tension because the cleric goes down. There's not a lot of healing left. This guy is just hammering out ninth-level spells. He had two or three of them at least, right? He had so two no, ninth-level, and I think I gave him three or four eighth it was a, It was a – I thought that you really um, – I thought that that was a great end that gave the big final battle that actually mattered. You know, it wasn't just an encounter. It wasn't just a slog fest. We, we battled this guy for four hours and I don't think any of us were like, Oh, when's this going to be done? You know, we were actively trying, like, what can we do? I'm sending notes across the table to you, Tony, being like, what do you think about this? So Thor, just as a, a quick, so some of those notes, one of them was I had anti-magic field as my eighth level. Ooh. My plan was I wanted to try to grapple this guy and cast it, which then makes him useless, right? As long as I can hold mm -hmm. on to him. But I could not get the initiative order in the right way for anybody to get me over there before I ate something to the face because I'm standing <laughs> right next to this fuckhead, right? Anyway, I've been rambling. Go. Yeah, he definitely had a lot of tentacles. There was problems with that plan. That was the thing. Like, at, like deep, like late, like when we were like hour four and a half, I'm like, okay, <laughs> is it time to break the staff of power? Like, am I going to do that? Am I really going to oh. break this on that ground? That yeah. is coming next round. I I'm got like, you. Oh, shit. I didn't even think I'm, about I'm that. Gonna, I'm going to take him out, and it's going to suck, and I'm going to lose this item, and my brains are going to be intermingled with the walls, but he's going to fucking be dead. <laughs> oh, that's funny, too, Tom, because I will say, like, our power curve definitely shifted a little bit during the Christmas game when the Staff of Healing exploded. Because that is surprisingly, like, giving out a Staff of Healing for anybody out there is surprisingly really changes the power curve because you just keep rejuvenating these people and your cleric is not wasting anything on it. So once that went away, our encounters, I definitely felt a shift because I had to prioritize my healing spells over the staff being able to do it, you know? Yeah. But. So this, was, this was the second time you guys had kind of fought this version of the Malbion. The first one had been uh, the previous session where he basically just – it was sort of like an introduction to here is the Malbion and here let's let the party see what they're dealing with and 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 a little bit let me see how the Malbion is going to deal with the party. But mm. mostly I just wanted the party to understand that when they met him for real, they were going to go into the hardest fight of the game, now, yeah. perhaps of their lives. And in that fight, in the initial fight, he was actually even stronger because you met him in his place of power and you hadn't weakened him any. So he basically just thought he was sacrificing the party to Gadanathwa to destroy the world. He thought he was getting out. Instead, Gadanathwa decides to, to go back to sleep for a thousand years and sends them off to the temple where he can be put to sleep with an artifact called the Orb of Odreth that they already have. So they went to the temple. They they fought their way through a couple uh, couple encounters there and got into the underground temple where, where it has where the, the, the ritual had to be done and got through about half of the ritual. And what I had done with that was I needed them all to make. I think I said they make arcana, uh, religion or performance checks, and I wanted 10 per party member. Yeah, you know, basically, so a total number equal 10 per party member. 
Oh, um, that's how I was wondering what that mechanic was that you were playing yeah. with, because I knew you were playing with something, but I could not tease it out in what we were doing. Because so what I had basically so I'll, I'll publish them. I'll be on at some point in the near future. I'll polish it up a little oh, bit yeah. uh, and, and, and put it on the site so you all can see what we did, what I did with it. But essentially, you know, it's 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 an archmage that is powered up by what it sacrificed to to, to this ancient being. So roughly based him on the Archmage, gave him a, a pretty much gave him 500 hit points, first of all, because I, I wanted a meaty. That's fight. about right. Clocked him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I gave him a plus seven on everything in the second battle. I think he was even higher in the first battle. And from a spell point of view, what I when I, what I said, what, what I did was I gave him access to every spell because I figured that was part of what he had unlocked. You know, this guy was already a thousand-year-old elven archmage before he started sacrificing everyone to the to, to the god of Okay. So he had access to the whole book. Uh, he had two okay. ninth-level spells. He had three or four eighth-level spells. I didn't necessarily hammer out exactly how many seventh and sixth and fifth and fifth and fourth and you know, all down the the road, but I'm sure I didn't. Ex- yeah, I didn't exceed those. We didn't have that many rounds because you know you're throwing out. You, know, you use your you use your two ninth. You use your three eighths. And by that time, that's already five turns gone, right? So, so the rest of the stuff gets peppered in there as you can. And he also had a 15-foot aura or skirt, really, of tentacles, of Gadanafo tentacles that he was now riding on. And they operated independently of him. When someone came into range, they had to make a dexterity save or be grabbed by the tentacles. And then on the beginning of his turn, the tentacles could do things like slam people into the ground, throw them across the room, dunk them in water and try to drown them. All sorts of good stuff. Or what finally did get Tony's giant, just crush him and and, 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 and break his bones. The sleeper um, hold. Hawk yes. would have been proud, I think, of that. And, he yeah. <laughs> and then the, the one other thing I did was he had legendary resistances and he had one legendary action, but I made it really wide open. I just said on the end of someone's turn, he can cast a spell. Any yeah. spelling. Like, yeah, it's definitely meaty. It's definitely yeah. meaty, yeah. What it did is, it, so, so I got to caveat that a little bit. So when I say he had two ninth-level spells, I already came in knowing I was not going to cast Wish, and I had made up my mind to not cast Meteor Swarm, because I thought they were they, they would both be kind of just instant instant kills. So when you're playing a character like this, I'm not playing, he's not playing fair, as Dave said, Dave did get a power word kill. Um, sure. he, he certainly was not there to play fair with the players. He also dispelled a, a uh, what would have been a powerful defensive yeah. spell they had. He yeah. not dispelled it, he counterspelled it. Counterspelled. Yeah, I was looking for a chance to counterspell healing. I was doing all the stuff to make the party hate this guy, is what it comes down to. <laughs> but I wasn't doing the stuff that would make this fight too, like just, just win the fight, because that's not what, what I want. You want to have the huge fight that the party really wants to kill this guy in the end. That's what I'm aiming for, which means you take some of your spells off the table. You take off the table. We we figured out Meteor Swarm would probably toast almost the entire party, so I didn't use that. Wish, same deal, you know. Yeah, it would uh, have the capacity to, absolutely, to, yeah. to just wipe us. Because, again, we get, like something like this, like you made the Malbion, if we were level 20, that might be a diff- that'd be a big different fight, right? But yeah. we're level fifteen rolling in, so you have to you gotta modulate it a little bit because of that. I'm dealing with some of the same thing with the upcoming, you know, end game with Vampire in the Strahd campaign, because you guys aren't level twenty. So it's like, you know, you, there is some modulation yeah. that needs yeah. to occur there. And I would say there's there's a bit of an art form to that the teasing out of the being dirty enough in the fight that the party really wants to kill him. But not being so dirty, not pulling out the big stop where the party's like, oh, this is bullshit. 
And I was really trying to tread that line. And I think I got it right. Like, I think I was right on the tightrope of it's very, very, very hard. He's very unfair. The party hates him, but the party is not like, oh, this is bullshit. I want to get out of here. I think I got it right this time. Absolutely. I I agree with you, Thor. Uh, Because as we've talked, you know, we've gone over the Woodstock Wanderers campaign a lot since the beginning of, of of the podcast. So a lot of you guys who are longtime listeners know a lot of the stories. But, yeah, we have definitely had our points during the campaign, because I think anytime you run a four-year campaign, you're going to have points. Uh, <laughs> so that's a good piece of advice. Just understand that it's a yeah. relationship and you're going to have some arguments. But, yeah, I don't uh, – while we had points with other lieutenants, other fights where it felt like some bullshit stuff, bullshitium, as uh, Tony has uh, said. Trademark. Um, trademark. Uh, that's canon. This one didn't. I didn't – I did I did not feel that way. Um yeah, I didn't feel that way because even with that, I mean, I dropped, I I was dead, and we had one other player who went unconscious at zero. That was it, though. I mean, other than that, we're taking some serious hits and we're having to heal and do all this stuff. But you know, we weren't like you know, two people left standing kind of thing, you know, which it could have easily turned into. Yeah. So, what do you think, Tony? Do you agree with that, or do you think it was a little over the line? What actually surprised me was, and I can say this now that the fight's over is that you really didn't use a ton of AoE spells, because that's the approach mm. I would have done. I would have been roasting everybody's chestnuts <laughs> across the board. I'm Level like, seven fireballs. Oh, you're downtown? You think you're safe crouching behind that rock? That's adorable. Let me get my ruler out and start, okay, where, where are we on the battle now? <laughs> when I... I used some of them like it actually I started the battle off with what a really bullshit move was. So the, the, the yeah, arena was awesome. shrouded in defensive magics that the Malbion had to rip through while they were doing their while the party was doing their ritual. And when they hit 30 successes on the ritual, that made him weaker than he had been. Um, so he wound up about four about, you know, minus four from where he had been in the first fight. But I had him come in time stop. He rolls five rounds of time stop. First round, he goes in, he steals their orb, he puts a delay blast fireball on the altar instead. Then he backs up and he gives himself mirror image. He gives himself, um, uh, what else did I give him? Uh, I think I gave him mind blank. Um, uh, he already has powerful magic defenses. That was one of the things I wanted to build into him. But, and then I think he ended that, oh, crown of stars. And then he ended that by sending a lightning bolt to the party and having the delay blast fireball, which is now 15d6 go off at the whole party. So like his first turn time stop stuff nearly wiped, took most of the party pretty low, just right from the beginning. So you had just healed up everything and you dropped right down. So, you know, I'll try and just pick off individuals after that. So was he having, did he have effects that allowed him to do more than one concentration spell at once? Ooh, see, that's the thing. If you look into this, those spells are not concentration. Interesting. You have to look into I, it. Because I was surprised. I didn't see a yeah. globe. I wasn't sure that he still had a stone skin. I wasn't aware that he had those up there. So mirror image, stone skin, and crown of stars, uh, as I remember, do not take concentration. Stone skin is concentration. But yeah, but overall, so like we're, we're at the end point here, but what if we take out like that high view image? Uh, you know, like we've gone over a lot of these stories, but overall, because again, you know, we've done these wrap ups with the published ones with Storm Kings and with Curse of Strahd in terms of like the yeah. book adventure. You know, if we did things past that, that's a little different. But 
what were the biggest differences with it? And just to clarify what we were talking about a second ago, Stone Skins is concentration, Crown of Stars, and the other mirror, mirror, image, mirror image are not. not. Yeah. So that's how you get all the work. And the truth is, Stone Skins doesn't matter because you guys all have magic weapons. I was just, I literally was like, <laughs> what am I going to do with the extra turn? <laughs> so as far as how that went compared to uh, something published, well, one of the advantages is, of course, Thorne had the ability to put out what he thought was cool right from the beginning and worked out in blocks versus you get something that's published. And when I look at that and go, this part here is neat. And this part I'm pushing right off the table and we're never going to discuss ever again. He didn't have to spend time. And I saw the published material is really that fantastic is and beautiful. But, but then you're like, what am I going to use? Do I need this? Do I have to run this? Is this truly integral to what I want to do? Because believe me, when I was running through Storm King's Tunnel, there's plenty of times I'm like, mm, we're going to skip that. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You didn't have to edit as much, right? You just got to start it out. And to tell you the truth, when I look at the long, the long arc of the campaign, uh, I think it absolutely, I, I think it absolutely played out the way you probably had slightly envisioned right from the get-go. Some of the stuff in the middle, obviously, you might have uh, you might have done a little differently, as we've talked about, uh, you know, being lost in the woods for 10 levels, maybe something like that. But uh, but no, I think like it stayed surprisingly very on course because like the idea of the Malbion and stuff was introduced like fifth level. And we then went another 10 levels past that, you know, working up to this final confrontation that. For me, I think I think the final conversation, as we just said, I think it paid off very nicely because it it didn't feel like a slog, which is impressive because that's four fucking hours <laughs> at least. At least. Yeah, it was just big and epic. I didn't feel let down by it or disappointed in it in any way, which is a kudos to you, Thor. And also to the to the people at the table who's who, you know, stayed involved and got into it. And we were digging deep, man. I mean, we had books out. We're looking up every spell. What does this one do? Can I do this? Is this, you know, yeah. I think one of the things we got to talk about here is how the homebrew campaign compared experience-wise to the to the book campaigns. So, I mean, did you guys feel like this was any more, did, you, did it feel shallow to you? Did you feel like you were on rails? I really tried not to put you on rails. Like, like how did it feel compared to kind of the, 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 the published uh, campaigns we've done? Well, for Storm King's Thunder, really, the beginning was rails, for sure. Like, I mean, I'll say I put my guys on rails sometimes. Oh, hell no. No, no. It's like, guys, I understand you want to try your characters out, see why they're cool, get your shit together. I need you to be five, fifth level so we can start this. That that's what was my take on the beginning of Storm King's Thunder. Uh, when I was playing in Woodstock on the other branch of that, that was absolutely not happening. We did not level up every session. We did not level up every other session. Uh, so when we did level, it indeed was an accomplishment. Hmm. So what about like, like how did playing in the homebrew feel compared to those? In what respect? Well, just, I mean, did it feel shallow? Did it feel, how did it compare? Like, do you feel like the, the, the games feel different because this one was homebrew and on really off the cuff versus those ones were pre-published? Well, yeah, I mean, of course it did feel different. I mean, honestly, there was stuff in Storm King's Thunder, and I don't know if Dave has read this module or not at this point. He probably did. No, but, not yet. Uh, I still plan on running it you're at some be, point with somebody. You're going to be staggered. <laughs> like, they, were, they, they did stuff with factions well beyond what I discussed. Mm. And I'm like, what? 
like, no one's going to be able to keep this shit straight. Like, I looked at my crew. I'm like, I already have my own kooky ideas. I'm going to start adding in my own influence. I can't. The bandwidth is just going to be over the top. If I had kept it on the table, it might have worked out. But I had my other ideas, so I had to kind of, like, cut and paste, so to speak, to make room for everything. Um, did your game seem shallow in comparison to that? Uh, obviously not if we played for four years. I, I mean, mean that's what I... That is a good point, right? I mean, you know, we we kept we kept this one going longer than any other campaign. I will say the beginning, Tony, you talked about experience versus milestone. When we first started in Woodstock and you were doing all experience based, uh, yeah. I was like, oh, this is this is awesome. I really want to, you know, this is I think this is great because it incentivizes people going out to do things that would you know garner experience. As we got higher up in levels, I realized some of the drawback of that is that you put four years into a campaign, you know, and we're level 15, right? Like, as opposed to like, we're, you know, two thirds of the, of the way through, through same level of Strahd and you guys are a uh, level above that, you know? So, yeah. Um, I think that there's a nice balance to be found between experience and milestone, I think. So in the very, very beginning, I felt like the world was very, not shallow at all, not one dimensional, like the, the town of Woodstock and stuff. And there was mystery and things like that. As it went on, it definitely didn't feel in the same level as it did in the beginning of the game. I didn't feel like it was on rails, but I will say I definitely could see where the story was. That's not necessarily a bad thing, because where else do you go? And as we've said on many, many occasions with this specifically, you had a mix of players who some were experienced, some had never picked up a D20 in their life. So you don't you can't necessarily approach it in the same way as with experienced players where you have this big, open, immersive world because they're going to be a little bit deer in headlights with it, right? So I think this group, if we did a new thing, I think it would be a I think you would approach it differently. And I think the, the party would probably approach it a little bit differently, too, because we got a better sense of of the gameplay and the game flow. Does that make sense? Yeah. In those ways? Yeah, yeah, I think it, it does. I mean, one of the things we did get we did wind up spending a lot of time in the kind of the, in the in the uh, loss in the woods. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things the that kept happening with this is when we shifted away from in person to roll 20. And this is a game that had been started, you know, had gone for a while in person and then shifted yes. to roll 20. Yes. And once we hit roll 20, things started slogging. Um, you know, some sessions went great. Other sessions were like, well, here's a dungeon. I'm expecting you guys to be through it a night. And like four sessions later, we're just wrapping it up. And that's like four months of time because yeah. it's once a month, <laughs> you know, some, some of that stuff became a bit of a problem in roll 20. And we made some adjustments. We started playing more theater of the mind and less battle map in roll 20 I also just started fig you know, basically calculating that okay if we're going to have a big battle map battle it's going to take a while these people yeah. just take just took longer to fight it in that way uh we did a lot of four-hour battles in roll 20 <laughs> unfortunately but at the same time we also had character we also had a lot of players who wanted to do different things and that was one of the things that kind of that that really kind of came out in this game i think was we got off the story when people wanted to get off the story and when people wanted to get to the other stuff we went and saw other stuff yeah but you also had like, okay, one of the players wanted to do more shopping and wanted to be more in towns. Another player just wanted more depth to their character and wanted to start inter inter interfacing with God and Alpha more. And all of these things kind of opened up individual uh, side stories and depth in some cases that we that I was able to kind of pick up and play with. But I only did it when someone really kind of wanted to. 
You know, I wasn't like throwing out here's 20 different, you know, well, there was one point. I remember one point I said, here, here's like six different things you all can do. You picked one, you went and did it, picked the end, you went on to the next thing from it. You wanted, that's actually how you got Dunawestro, how you got the, the key. Yeah. Yeah. The, the party has a has a castle now and the wardens of the uh, east for one of the kingdoms. But that stuff really like I didn't bait it out there. Like I didn't I didn't like put a bunch of like, OK, here's the stuff on the map you guys might find. I played it by ear and I tried to give you kind of what you wanted at the point where you wanted to go in other directions. But that is a little different from a published campaign where you're prepping a bunch of things. You don't know exactly where they're going to go. Whereas I'm able to step in there and just be like, all right, well, I want to do this, you know. We, they want to go in this direction and build it on the fly. Yeah, I think that there's I think there's similarities, though, though too, because we talked about how, you know, that people can only get through so much in a session. Yeah. And you can always do like what we've talked about with at the end of any session. What are you guys thinking of doing next? Get a sense of where they are, what they find is important. And then that can tell you prep wise. Um, you definitely have uh, freedom in that whatever you say is the next thing. Like you don't have to edit out anything. You don't have to, well, this chapter doesn't quite work that way. So what can I do to change that? You know, um, <laughs> these years later, I have a really different perspective because I came in here on a little battle map hat hating. Some people may have said, I felt that way, which it's based in truth. But then I look at how Scott made like a section of what we were standing on. And he's like, yeah. oh, I just took this wood and stained it and carved it a bit. And that's one section of this wall. And I'm like, oh, like, yeah. holy crap, man. Like, we're, like, if I had seen that as, as a teenager, I actually would have, like, passed out. I'm like, really? <laughs> we're we're, we're going to have this is going to be what we're going to use as our battle map. I mean, it, even now, it was super cool. Yeah. If you guys go to the socials today, we'll probably have uh, have shared them. Some of the in-person, you know, in real time shots of the ziggurat and the underground temple. Uh, we got a couple of those so you can see Scott's handiwork. That and the temple itself, about. yeah. No, it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, that was but, really but, cool. Me being able to kind of have the final encounter being this thing that is really cool temple that one of the players had made. Uh, that, that I thought added, like really added something to that final battle too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I think is actionable from this though is that Using the battle map necessarily doesn't slow you down. And this may sound shocking coming from me. It's really how you approach it. So if you're going through a dungeon, like so when Thor was with the tree, we were really looking around and moving around inside there, like we technically are, round by round. And you don't always have to, like, you got to be somewhere in the middle. Where is that important? In the actual battle where the paladin's like, hey, I want to make sure I can use my sentinel feet. Or the polearm master wants to make sure that they can use that feat. Or the rogue wants to see if they can sneak attack. That's where those things matter. Not as much as, let me peek around this corner. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, wait, I have to wait around. Crap. <laughs> Tony, I will absolutely agree with you on the sense of... Um, and thankfully, we had, we've had we had Scott in the party. And right from the get-go, he had started doing this stuff. He made us custom minis, he, all this stuff, right? But... Um, We've said this before. One of the ways you can make your final big battle epic is doing something wildly different. And to have those types of um, and two sessions in a row. I mean, we had outside the temple, which is a huge ziggurat and the path leading up to it. We had the big fight there. And then we delved down into the underground tunnel. And then we have the big setup there. 
it's not something that, you know, we're doing every single game because that's just too much to ask, I think, you know, unless you're running something on YouTube. I mean, you know, if you're doing a real play, then, yeah, do your thing, right? And Dorvin Porch can send us things. But if that's not happening, like, but for your final, do something. Make something. I mean, Thorne, you went full out, dude, because you even put on fucking music on the phone, dude. Yeah. And you had, like, the epic stuff going. I mean, all of it was... I mean, finally, we kind of turned the music down because at some point, like, you're trying to talk and you just can't hear everybody. But it definitely, those little things all add to this feeling that this is different. This is special. This is something, its own. It's unique, you know? And I think that just really added to that final battle. Yeah, really, I tried to kind of find stuff. Like, I think we wound up going with, like, gothic uh, villain music and organ music. I was really looking for something that felt like the end of a Final Fantasy. You know, if you've ever played to the end of a Final Fantasy game, that that boss is always like a biblically epic encounter with some intense music in the background. You know, yeah. it's like the choir screaming at you. You know, that's so that's that was and, and it actually worked. Actually, one of the players was saying how the music was giving her like, like, like almost anxiety. like like, like it gave, it gave her anxiety because and I'm like, She's yeah, like, that's what I'm here for. Sweating. <laughs> yeah, she wasn't ready for Japanese, uh, you know, final boss music. Uh, yeah, that was awesome. It was epic, dude. It was epic, epic. So, what did you guys like about the campaign? Campaign, not just the final battle. I mean, yeah, of course, yeah. So, some of the materials used in there were fantastic. Uh, the overall idea was unique. I'm sorry, Marvel kind of stole that from me, but I didn't see Eternals, so I don't care. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I didn't see it. I heard there's yeah spoilers. I heard there's a similar plot line along yeah. that. So yeah. I have to tell you, I played a, I may have played a little bit of D and D in my life. I have never run parallel to that plot line before no question Strahd, yes i mean you know i'm gonna kill Strahd yet again and i'm gonna have to really rate <laughs> him against dave Strahd and all the other yeah yeah really and if you let this drag on too long i'm gonna probably hijack one of the games for halloween and bring my own version of Strahd there just so i can say i did it too we can all right it. yeah like Strahd is like when actors play batman or doctor who it's always like you're always just rating against the other one and you all have your fate. Well, he was my first Strahd, so he'll always be, you know, whatever. So, yeah. No, I thought you nailed, I thought you nailed him, really. I think you uh, didn't do anything truly too audacious with that. The Malbion, I have to tell you, the thing with, with him, though, he was like the long, for me, was the long distance villain. I met him yeah. back in like many, many moons ago. I saw him. He's dangerous. He's a jerk. He's doing bad things. And his people are out there doing bad things. He's certainly the bad guy. But I hadn't seen him in real years. So it was like a really, it was a really kind of like bittersweet, strange reunion. I was a giant. He's level 39, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. He's a, no, um, yes, I think uh, plot wise, Tony, I, I would agree with you. Uh, we've said it before, this campaign started classic D&D. It started like a classic Gary Gygax kind of adventure, right? Comes to the small town, there's been some disappearances, and the goblins are probably at fault. So we need some adventurers to find the... Right? Like, your classic opening. Like, you never can go wrong with that. And then quickly, like, well, not maybe not quickly, but really started to shift around and then you saw where uh thorn your your lovecraft stuff was starting to come in but i thought that went a cool way because it wasn't like you have said before you were 
there were like two paths that could have gone. Like at one point we could have fought Gadanathwa in a way or the Malbion. And I thought that you chose the right one because as I said previously too, like Gadanathwa, it's like, it's a, he's a phenomenal plot device. He can't be the villain because you can't win. Like you're literally Adrian talking to like you can't win. You know, like it's just, but you literally can't fucking win. Like this thing is the world, right? So I thought you you totally chose the right path on that way. Thank you. In terms of the in terms of the the overall plot. I will know. throw out there if you pick up Sandy Peterson's Cthulhu Mythos for five E, which I do have. They do have ways of you fighting essentially aspects of these things. Oh, like the avatar of it or Nine. something? Well, sort of like someone did a summoning and they don't get the full, they don't get the full outer one. They get the aspect of it. I got you. And there's like different levels of aspects and you can, you can kind of do things to stop them from manifesting fully. So I would have used something like that if we fought okay. Gadanathwa. Although Gadanathwa had been touching you guys literally all campaign. So that might've been a little weird, right? I mean, <laughs> literally you've been dealing with his tentacles all campaign. So now you've got to deal with an avatar. That doesn't really necessarily add up. Well, and um, with that, too, like we had kind of, as you said, you were you were trying the best you could to allow us to drive it forward, which definitely had its own issues, because when you have players that aren't necessarily sure how to do that or if they can do that or what's allowed, they don't necessarily know how to drive it forward. So you, you, you can sometimes get at certain impasses. But when we started to interact with it and discuss things among the party that Gadanathwa is not the enemy. He's a, it's a force of nature. It's being, yeah. it's being exploited. Then that kind of showed you, I think, too. Okay, yeah, that we got it. The Malbion is the, is the big guy. Would you agree? With, is is that kind of how you, how your uh, your thought pattern went with that? Yeah, definitely. And I think that with kind of any all the Lovecraftian kind of things, like, you know, the uh, there's definitely evil things that directly mean you harm all over the Lovecraft universe. But when you're talking something like Gadanathwa, you know, well, Cthulhu is a little different, but like some of the things from outside, Yaxothoth, you know, Azathoth, these things, they don't recognize you. You're you're an ant to them. Now, we did change that with Gadanathwa, as Dave mentioned last week and not, was not a fan of, because we had one of the players who kind of, you know, you know, I always had in my mind that there'd be a way the party would be able to talk Gadanathwa kind of back to going to sleep. And I don't know if I pulled that off as well as I wanted to. Because I kind of turned into a conversation, and maybe I needed it to be something other than a conversation. Uh, I wanted you guys to meet it, experience it, understand a bit about like Ojin, the character who'd been kind of carrying Gadanathwa, uh, a piece of him to show him that it was for him to see the world or it to yeah. see the world. Yeah. Uh, I wanted the party to experience a bit of that, but it didn't quite go over the way I was hoping. It I'm, I'm glad I didn't know about that because Erasmus would have lost his shit had he known that <laughs> Ojin was like a spy cam for this giant eyeball that would learn to the earth. Honestly, well, I, knew, I knew that much. I just didn't, as, I don't think we fully understood that like this thing was like actively attempting to understand what was happening in the, in the greater world and, and between us. I, we all knew that she was fucking infected though. Like, to the point where the rogue was shooting her in the ass. Arrows, I thought she played that well too. I thought, you know, I, I thought that worked out. Yeah. I like a little bit of party strife. I don't like the party. I like the, I like to put the party in a bit of conflict, not the, not necessarily between party members, although it works out that worked out that way here. But I want to, as we talked about last last episode, I want to tempt the party. I want them to have to think hard about, am I going to stick to my alignment or take the power or take the reward? And I want to have some players pick up on that. 
because that makes for a more interesting game. And then you do have some party conflict where they got it, where the party's got to figure out how do they still work together. But to me, that's the fun of the game. Well, you know what? I got to tell you, there was a time where I delved into the dusty tomes for those forbidden spells. <laughs> and then I turned into a pile of bugs. Okay. That happened. Fine. This time I felt this decision was really easy. I'm like, no, my lawful good wizard is not going to sacrifice sentient beings to the giant eyeball tentacle <laughs> monster. Not happening. I don't care if he's innocent or he's not as bad as he seems. Nah. Besides, Ocean had that locked down. I'm like, go for it. Yeah, it was yeah. only bad people. That's one thing that I wish just from a party role play wise, because I really liked where Bonnie had started to take that. But then we were like kind of coming up towards endgame point, so you didn't really have time to explore it. But where she started to, in essence, be the anti-hero, right? She was the Punisher. She was Deadpool. She was something like that, where she was starting to sacrifice to this thing. But, like, criminals and murderers and, you know, cut purses and things like, like she that. Went out, she went out to get mugged, and then she sacrificed the muggers. You know? Right, right, exactly. So, like, that that's a fun thing to kind of start to play with in that way, especially when, like, the the players all know this is happening. The characters don't, right? So that's always fun. <laughs> and Thorne, I agree with you. Being able to introduce, and it's not necessarily something that you actively do, but you're putting things in front of the party that create an internal tension, that create conflict within the party itself. You did that with, you know, Ojin going with Gadanathwa and such. In the Strahd game, we obviously had a lot of that with the gentleman. Right. Where there was this conflict in the party of like, we're not OK with this necessarily, you know. So that is always good if you can put that. But, Tony, you hit on this and it's a good point. And I was actually just talking to Bonnie about it on Sunday. We were actually on the car driving and I was saying one of the issues you you have to be careful of. And I think this is a good piece of advice. And it's not wrong. Like Thorne didn't do it wrong, but it's just something you have to be aware of that. When you have that central tension, like, for instance, in the Woodstock game, you had that central tension of, like, temptation to got to this thing, sacrificing power or, you know, whatever, morality, let's say, or something like that. The issue you have is certain characters to take that path literally just breaks the character. The character has mm -hmm. now become useless. Like, they're not that person. Like, if Bean did that or Sir Morton or Erasmus. Like we could never, we could never really go down that path because it's just not, it's just not there, you know. Now I, I understand you're probably going to say about with like Brother Maynard and that kind of started the whole thing, and I get that, but there's like a level of like, well that's cool and like there's obviously cool mechanics there, but I can't go down there because like that's just going to destroy like my whole idea of this character, you know. Well, he's going to fall. Yeah. Like Ojin is a character of of of, in between, of gray morality who can do it without falling. Yeah. If Beam had done it, if uh, Sir Morton had done it, and I and there was Brother Maynard was a member of Sir Morton's Paladin Order. He was the exemplar of the order. Yeah. He had gone to investigate what was going on here, and he got kidnapped. But he also got he went he went native essentially. He he got seduced by the cult, and he was too far gone by the time the party met him, where he was doing these sacrifices. And there was some internal logic to that because part of the thinking behind the cult was this is going to happen anyway. We might as well egg it along and get off the planet ourselves. Now, that was a character who was supposed to be an exemplar of lawful good paladin, Miss, who fell. He yeah, flat out yeah. fell. No, so I mean, you did definitely set it up that, that way. Yeah, yeah. If, Lolf, if Beam were to do that or Sir Morton were to do that, 
they are choosing to fall, but that is a way a character can evolve. That's not a bad, you're playing Call to Adventure. You've had a character fall there, haven't you? (laughs) It's kind of fun. You know, it's, it's, so I don't, I wouldn't take that totally off the table. So with this, it needs to have some degree of temptation hook that actually catches. So let's go back to Curse of Strahd. Like, Hawk is a good character. Sir Scar were good character. In fact, mm. the party's filled with good characters. But guess what? We're in a magic, a low magic world. One magical item of any form is truly valuable. So we get to the Amber it's Temple. such a dire picture. <laughs> well, that's how Ravenloft traditionally is. I felt like you played that right right out of the book. No apologies needed. So we get to the Emperor Temple, and these monsters are like, well, how would you like to, oh, I don't know, have the strength of a fire giant and, say, some lightning powers? And I'm like, wow, I've got a plus one short sword. I'd probably like these things to go into my final battle with Strahd. And that's what motivated that. Now, Thorn's campaign wasn't quite as high magic as Storm King's Thunder, but it's a higher magic world. Nothing is as high magic as Storm King's Thunder. I'll take that as a very deep compliment. (laughs) And so it didn't seem as attractive. However, upon final inspection, because like a lot of these things weren't honestly, I didn't see this on the table in its context. Body had some really dope abilities. Oh, dude, it was fucking broke as shit. Yeah, and she, it was and insane. She, and she's like, I'm not really getting anything from this. And I'm like, um, what's your DC? Because if my DC was a 25 like hers, I would have I would have tied that guy up in knots into a pretzel in that last battle. I'm scared by 18, and he, she's seven DCs higher than me. Oh, guys, don't tell me about what I'm doing this broken. <laughs> That's, that's, that's like a, I'm in awe. I'm in awe. I should have sacrificed some people. Give me a baby. I'm throwing <laughs> a blender. Seven more DC? Woo! Was it seven? It should have been, she had a plus five. She, she her yeah. max was no, plus she had, five. Yeah, she had plus five, five to everything she had. Well, I think but it was like, then, on top of some, five on everything else. Yeah, on top of some of the magic she already had and some buffs yeah. that were already there from just, you know, our adventures, that, that added up to a lot. Yeah. Quite possible. Yeah. I, I'm just saying that my DC with a 20 intelligence and that final confrontation was an 18. That was the parties across the board. Everybody had 18 DCs. Yeah. And she had a 25. And I'm like, Bon, get him. Like, blow his brains <laughs> out. Like, KO this guy. Hit him with a, a little Mac, of, uh, you know, star rising uppercut and knock his block off. And and that was the thing was uh, she actually got dropped to bestow curse on him that I foolishly did not use a legendary resistance on, but yeah he didn't have an easy time making her saves, so he eventually did get he eventually broke out of the stunning effect of the of the curse and was able to remove curse himself, but she was she was a powerful player. The way I chose to do this one wasn't so much just hey get some power it was get a lot of power because I know what the ask is is you know unfathomable sacrifice yeah, yeah. living creatures to this ancient elder god that's going to and, and help it wake up because yeah, every time you sacrifice to it you're getting it closer to waking up in exchange for really serious bonuses uh and also some other abilities like you could summon you could summon uh tentacle walls and stuff like that so that was the trade-off that was that was one of the core mechanics i wanted in that game 
And, you know, Bonnie, Bonnie leaned into it, it and uh, no one else really did. It showed up in the end game. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, Bean starts like, you know, Aztec animal, you know, human sacrificing people. I'm like, it's time for me to get off this. this, uh, this yeah. Yeah. So, like, you know, the like I, I totally love the redemption arc and stuff. But, yeah, I, I, I would never Bean would never have taken that would have never taken that deal during the thing. But again, that is it wasn't wrong, but it's just understanding the who you're playing with and who is really open to kind of taking down uh, whatever road you might be looking at, you know. But again, as we've seen in, in some of the other campaigns, the, that can also surprise you. So, well, and also uh, one, this was the this is the first time playing with all of you. Well, yeah. not to, but so I didn't have that background. You know, part of putting this in there was finding out, OK, who's temptable? Yeah. Who wants to play with the stuff that's off the with the stuff that's off road a little bit? And the other thing was with the Amber Temple, I do think uh, my character Phineas, who treated this as oh, let's go make a deal Absolutely. from the beginning. I think I did a lot to reframe the whole hey, we're making a pact with the devils here. You know, I'm like oh, let's just let's just I've already made a pact for power. Let's just make another one. Come on, yeah, yeah. What can you give me? Yeah, it's definitely. It, it, uh, I think the way it, it presented itself in there. Um, gave that sense because i feel like uh both tony and chris kind of felt this way like it was almost like okay we're gonna do this because we have a bigger evil to fight in terms of strahd then when they realized what was happening you know that whole thing occurred uh not realizing that during that time they were actually helping to loose the larger yeah. evil the real evils of the land you know but so Whereas as opposed to like i'm sacrificing to this thing that the big bad is also sacrificing to, and we're kind of now just at an impasse. We're just both, you know, galactically powerful. You know, that we thing, all have it was power source. We all have DC twenty fives. You know, like just the, funny enough. Are... Just real quick though, um, even with that though, even with all those buffs, she was still missing, and he was still making certain saves. So, you know, yeah, like was, yeah. the, the bounded accuracy still was still there. It was it was holding on. It was still holding on. The difference there was that there was no truly negative side effects to Gananathua's boon like there was in Curse of Strahd. Mm-hmm. I immediately started becoming, like, evil. And I'm like, holy shit, this has to go. Before I start kicking orphans. I'm like, no, this, this, is, <laughs> this is not... Meanwhile, Phineas is like walking around the raspy voice. He's like, "Oh, I just need some lozenges." I'm like, "I'm gonna go burn an orphanage to the ground." I'm like, "No, I can't do this. I'm gonna ruin my character permanently in like five minutes." Remember, Hercules did slaughter an entire wedding party before redeeming himself. Hercules was terrible. He, I mean, from mythology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he killed he killed his one teacher just for like no reason. <laughs> just for, like, what, like, what do you mean? I, I can't. I'm not good at music. Bricks is back. Like, you know. Yeah, just he here's murdered. a book, bitch. Crack. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, okay. So, other than that kind of core mechanic and got an awful on the Malbion, like, what what sticks out to you? What do you remember from the campaign? Uh, really, where I my my strongest memories were were back at the beginning where. It was really this kind of it had much more of a different vibe than where we got, which is fine because like where Dave's game started is sure not where we're ending up. Uh, it had much more of a Castlevania, unpending world of darkness. So it wasn't Ravenloft, but I was in uh, the Gothic Kingdoms. My particular kingdom was falling. The neighboring kingdoms were had either sided with the darkness and became basically. Uh, the equivalency of an undead Nazi Germany. I mean, 
that's what I read. That was the scene there. And then, you know, I dipped out, was in Storm King's Thunder, came back in, and they had moved past those lands, lands with the who had entirely different problems, much less zombies, many more tentacles. Well, and that was the difference, too, between where the two groups were playing. Because where so that was the original group that, uh, that wound up breaking up. And that group was playing more in the undead space. And the, the Woodstock Wanderers were playing in the Elven Forest and more in the God of Nothwood space. So that was a little bit of that, too. Like, they never really, until later, until you guys came back to civilization, which at one point you decided to do. You decided you didn't want to meet the Malbion yet. You wanted to go back and, and do some other things. Then you found out about the vampire infestations and how Strahd was trying to corrupt the nobles and the kings of the world to to convince them to let him to to work with him in which would allow and for him to try to drag the world into Ravenloft. Like that was a whole separate plot. And also that's a plot that's still ongoing. So you guys have to make a decision there. Uh, do you want to try to deal with that before we wrap this campaign? Yeah, I'll say the um a lot of things, Tony, I agree that a lot of the things that stood out were uh, some of the earliest uh, parts of the game. Um, I think to tell you the truth, uh, and like we, we worked through it and, and we got to the end of this, but that interruption with Roll20 and going virtual with this group, we've said it many times, we made the jump, but it definitely brought a lot of stuff with it too. It just it just had a different feel. This group was is just more of a live group. It's just that's how some things are. But the, a lot of the early games, I mean, there are so many instances that we've talked about a ton on here. Yeah, I mean, we had like things like the red cap incident. We had that awesome scene where we had the total party capture, literally right after the red cap incident, where we woke up and were first introduced to this. That's when we realized, oh, this is the game we're playing. Is this elder horror thing? Right? <laughs> Oh, this is a different D&D. Um, but things like that. And then, you know, we had to kind of, we we had to figure out the virtual space for this group. And I think it, it dampened certain things. I will say the entrance of Erasmus, Tony's character into it, I thought was great because I think it really did give a jolt. Uh, a much needed jolt. It was also fun to see a character jump over like three universes. You know, <laughs> he jumped over like three games, you know, in different forms. So that was fun. He's and cameo then, and curses Strahd before closes. Yeah. He like and rings then, a bell uh, and leaves. And then the, this this lead up to this finale epic fight thing, I thought was really a, a wonderful way, like a wonderful capstone that brought everything. Because that's also what happened too, is these... Um, models these these battle uh you know setups that scott had built we had done early in the game when we had first come to these things and you know introduced this and that was actually right when covid hit and we went to to virtual table so we excuse me never got to play on those boards again and we brought them out here and it was like the final thing and it was a great way to tie that circle closed for the story, like it kind of started where it ended, you know, or ended where it started type of thing. So, <laughs> so yeah, but I'll, I'll, like every single session in the live days were, were phenomenal, every single one. And then, you know, as we've talked on the cast for a number of reasons, the, the online stuff, we were doing the best we could, but it's sometimes uh, for everybody out there too. Uh, not every group is going to react the same. I mean, we had a group, like we talked to Slavers Bay, didn't even make it. To jump to tabletop because, you know, it was 
just fizzled. So, you know. I mean, we had a lot. Of, I think we had good games and bad games on Rolls Park. Uh-huh. And I don't think there were that many bad games, but they kind of stand out because when they got bad, they kind of they kind of had a habit of slogging on and dragging on. Yeah. Was, yeah. was the issue. And also pretty quickly in Roll 20, we wound up kind of getting out of the kind of the woods and into the civilization. And I think for some characters that felt like that was off of the main story that they wanted to get back to. And for other characters, like, look, I really want to get go see what else is going on. Do other stuff. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Like there was conflict in the party as far as what people wanted to do. Like we've talked about it before, like Tony hates shopping. But there were people in the party like, I want to go shopping. You know, it's like there was there was direct conflict in many cases where these players wanted to do this. Those players wanted to do that. And that kind of led to some, you know. Different di- different opinions on the game, I think. One of my uh, stronger memories was also in person. That was a good one. Was when we went to assassinate Lord Richard, where oh, yeah. we we pulled all our abilities, got false documents, trekked across the woods, got through checkpoints, pretended to be diplomats from a neighboring country, got into their encampment, pretended that we we're interested in joining them, got him alone, murdered the vampire lord, made a run for it. Like that was really like a high point of the game, and then COVID hit. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, that was really, and that was uh, that was the group that broke up. That was a fantastic arc, and that was almost all entirely player driven. I'm like, okay, this is going on. What do you guys want to do? You had like four different things you could do, uh, and then I asked you, okay, so you want to go try to stop this? You basically, it was basically an encampment where the where, where this kingdom working with Strahd was turning their people into an undead army. So the party decided how they wanted to go in and they impersonated uh, envoys from another country to sneak in. Yeah. Yeah. And and it all just kind of, it really worked really well. And the party off the cuff just did amazing things in that game. And that's like, that's like D and D at its best, you know, kind of, you got all these options and the party decides or the character, the players really decide, how do I want to tackle this thing? And then as the DM, you're just kind of, you know, you're adjudicating, you're, you're, you're improving, you're putting up what, okay, you want to do that? Well, here's, here's, here's what opposes you in that. Uh, and that worked really well, especially in that, that, that particular instance. Mm. And, fi- and finally, I got to agree with Dave, uh, 145% here. When we were doing our in-person games again, the dynamic could not be any more different. Like, it really changed. When you're looking across the table, you can see people's eyes, their expressions. I'm not just looking <laughs> at my laptop in my pajamas at, like, nine different screens because the, the physical cues, the interaction stronger. Listen, if you can only play or your group's distanced out and that's how you roll, that's great. But there is also some other different type of magic that occurs at a table with your crew. Absolutely. Thor, so... You're, you start it all over again. Is it what, what, if anything, would you change, alter, do mm. differently, approach different? Some, you know, where, where, where do you think it fell in terms of, you know, successes and failures? Not you know, failures, but, you know. So the Elven, the, the kind of the Elven Woods, where, where the sacrifices of the Malbion, where the Malbion was sacrificing people to Gadanathwa, were t- very depopulated. And I think I would have liked to have added more life into there. Now, this in part also had to do with the fact that we were it was a learner game to begin with. So some things kind of like sometimes it was just a matter of just focusing the party, focusing people on what was in front of them and, and just helping people understand how to play the game at that point. Yeah. So I would have liked to have had more tiebacks and maybe some more special things in that forest that were more interesting. So I feel I feel like aside from encounter spaces you had in like particular places where we had adventure points 
that forest is a bit flat. So that's one thing I would have changed. I would have kept the Strahd. I would have kept the Gadanathwa. I would have kept the Malbion. I really like the Talantia kind of like, you know, kind of undead Nazi Germany thing. I think it'd be interesting <laughs> if this party wants to go in and deal with that. I would have moved you guys out of the woods quicker, probably. Brother Maynard fight was a weird situation because of the situation where kind of there was a lot of miscommunication around the two. I don't know exactly what I would have, would have done differently there. I know overall I would try to keep you out of – I would try to make sure the fights were shorter, like so we weren't doing any multi-session fights. I remember the Black Dragon lair in particular. The Black Dragon fight went quickly, but exploring his lair, I just built what I thought was a pretty average lair. I'm like, yeah, this is a dungeon yeah. crawl. Here's a dungeon crawl. And three months God, later. That's, that just slogged out so bad. I'm like, this is how we do it. Like, Yeah, absolutely. You know, no, absolutely. Got something interesting in it, and it's just, it's just that they weren't – putting interesting things in and challenges for the players just turned into time wasting. So I'd probably do that differently. And that's in roll 20 issue too. I think I had a hard time making dungeon crawls work efficiently in roll 20. Yeah. That was a definite problem I had. Like whenever I wanted to put you guys in a dungeon with like, you know, just kind of, okay, you're going along and dealing with traps and monsters and your typical classic RPG dungeon crawl Absolutely. in roll 20, that became a multi-session ordeal. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think that worked out very well. Um, what else would I have done differently? Hmm. That's all right. What do you think? Yeah. What, are your high, it, I think. what are your high points? What do you remember the most from it? Like, what do you take away that you, you know, you're going to talk about, you know, 10 years from now? Obviously that. That's obviously I mean, that. I mean, definitely the total party capture after the red cap incident Woo! where you guys had the showdown with Sir Morton and you had uh, in, in the Paladins, uh, I'm sorry, you had the showdown with Brother Maynard. Yeah. And Sir Morton, your paladin, was able to use word of command and amazingly get the guy to fail a saving throw At while you all five. were able to escape. Oh, that was yeah. excellent. Going back to Tony's game, the incident Tony talked about where they did the infiltration session that ended in killing a vampire lord that the party really had no business even facing at that point. Excellent. I loved how the Malbion fight went. That was exactly what I was trying to do. And that was the situation, too, where, where I was able to get in some other encounters and other challenges for you guys. Like there were probably yeah. like six things you guys did overall like, yeah. in that session it con concluding with the malbion yeah. so i thought that went very well actually i thought i don't know if you guys remember but so when you came out of the lord holmdale your lord holmdale and yeah. then your encounters with vampires in the uh with with, with the duke the who made you yeah uh, yeah well yeah. but also just the whole encounter like because there was the lord holmdale thing which was basically the party had heard that there was a there there were they came out of the woods they 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 spent some time at a uh, Sir Morton's paladin stronghold with with the other knights of his order. They'd heard about some things. They went to investigate this one thing, and it turned out that the Lord had been turned into a vampire. But in going after that vampire, one, they were, got him down to the crypt and were able to kill him, but then they also started discovering the Strahd plant. And I thought that unveil, I thought that kind of the unveiling and how that worked worked out pretty well. And then when you went to the next city, and I can't remember the name of it, basically when you went to the Duke's Castle, the, the, who gave you Donawestra, the, the castle that's now yours, you, there was a whole role-playing session of you guys and Count Ruffelgay trying to convince the Duke that your way was right. Yeah. And Count Ruffelgay was a uh, bad guy we from the other uh, session. We were with King uh, Garillon at that point. Before that, yeah. it was Duke Craswell. Uh, yes, Duke Craswell. Thank you. Yeah. King Garillon, King Garillon was who you were kind of working for. But basically, you had to convince Duke Craswell because many, you know, basically Strahd's story was this. Strahd's story was, look, Gadanath was about to wake up and your entire world's going to be destroyed. If you let me, if you work with me, 
if you let me bring darkness to your world, essentially, I can pull you into Ravenloft. And in Ravenloft, nothing reaches its potential. God and Otham will never wake up. That was Strahd's pitch. And he was making it through through various vampires he had made who were going to these people of power. You had a list of co-conspirators who were being convinced and moved and kind of coming in. That all felt pretty good. We didn't get too deeply into it because you guys wanted to get back onto the next thing. But I thought that worked pretty well. Well, that's definitely part of that was you had you have the time the you have where time helps to push people forward, but then it also pushes people forward. So anything where we went off road, right? It was like, oh my God, like this thing's going to happen. Like the, the bomb's going to go off kind of feel, I think. Well, true. But also, you know, there were other things that I was able to reveal there that, you know, there's the whole vampire plot, you know, that, that whole thing. And that encounter you guys had with, with Duke Craswell to convince him that, to give you a chance to book out an author to sleep before joining Strahd. Uh, you, when you guys went to the Elven Kingdom, I thought that was kind of neat, you know, because there you got to see some of the effects God and Alpha was having in other realms in that the king of, not the Elven Kingdom, but it was uh, the, when you went to the Feywild and met with the Elven King there. And that king was shutting down the Feywild, shutting down, he was shutting down the uh, roads from your world to the Feywild to prevent God and Alpha from contaminating it because they were getting refugees who, when they got there, who had encountered God and Alpha, were going crazy. So, so kind of just 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 being able to introduce that kind of like corrosive influence. Mm. Those things I thought all worked pretty well. But at the same time, I don't know how much of that you remember because of some of the slocks. <laughs> no, I remember all, all of those things. Actually, I remember very much. I will say the uh, the Lord Holmdale thing was definitely a uh, was definitely a, a higher point in terms of some of the virtual stuff because it was so different too. I think because we finally shifted. Uh, yeah, that the nameless forest thing was where it got a little bit like I we're not even sure where we are next encounter kind of feel. So yeah, once we started investigating civilization, we had a little bit of a of a change and a shift definitely. So, what do you think didn't work? I think that perhaps yeah, when we were in just on uh the principle of that whole we fight a dragon, we fight the dragon uh plot line and then we go to its lair and not that any of that particularly got stuck, but the situation basically came to a dragon was our lands, went to investigate, and next thing you know, half of a year of real time went by. Yes. That, mm. that, that was a real commitment, like, in that time. I mean, we did actually did lead up to getting an artifact that we needed, but, like, that, it's like, okay, guys, so from uh, January to August, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I don't do Dungeon Crawls or Roll 20 anymore. And those plants. Oh, screw those plants. Let me tell you. Well, talking about, uh, like, versus, like, published stuff, that's why a lot of people say don't ever run Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Because it's literally just like a mega, like a three-year mega dungeon, you know? <laughs> Could you imagine running that on Roll 20? <clears throat> so what about for, like, homebrewers out there? Is there anything you would recommend they do? to uh to pull off a better campaign well to bring in something actionable that they can apply to that some things that worked really well is to really provide the opportunities for agency if they're going to do that you're going to put out the world you're going to put the legwork so you have all these strong npcs in a deep world and all these other plot lines running then thorin approaches it differently than i do where he's much more like okay guys i don't know how you're going to solve this problem go solve it Meanwhile, I'm already like, so here's the problem. I'll tell you how you're going to solve it when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, I'm much more interested in having the party come up with solutions. 
No, I think that's a great way to do it. Yeah, I will say, uh, and I think, again, I think this is probably due to the players and, and uh, you know, this is the first 5e thing you would run. Uh, this is the first time some people had played D&D at all, much less some people had, you know, not played 5e. So there was that, let's see what we can do type of thing. Because, yeah, I would have liked to have had more, because that's where I think, like, with with the town of Woodstock, I I think it felt much more immersive because there was, it had a feel like there were things there that if I pushed into them, they would push back, where a lot of the other areas didn't necessarily have that same kind of feel. It was felt more like, I have to finish this encounter, and then I'll move on to something else, where it wasn't like a lot of, like, story or understanding like we were talking about the vampire incursion and the duke and all and the Feywild and all those things were there but not in a way that necessarily made us go well let's we should investigate that we should figure out what that is you know it just didn't feel like that on this side of it where like we need to go do that it was more like okay what are we what are what's being put in front of us type thing which i know was the exact opposite of your style and what you were what you were trying to accomplish in it in some of those well, I mean, encounters yeah. i mean at all those points i asked you what you wanted to do and we wound up doing what the party wanted to do i never i was never there like okay next you got to go do this thing absolutely it, you know it was no, always a matter of okay what plot line does the party want to pursue how do they want to pursue it and there was i think there was a little bit of you know maybe that was a little bit of an experience in the group of not being able to you know kind of think about what the possibilities were also, maybe a bit of a, a bit of mistake on my part by not fleshing out more possibilities and making them clear. Although there were certainly times where I'm like, here's like six things you can do. What do you want to do? You know? Yeah. <laughs> there was also conflict in the party between people who wanted to keep going after the Malbion and people who wanted to go do other stuff. Of course. You know? Of course. Yeah. All right. <laughs> We've gone on about this for a little while. That might be about all we could go into for uh, the Woodstock Wanderers. So let's get the final thoughts here. What, you know, what are your final thoughts on the Woodstock Wanderers main campaign? And uh, what would you have seen different on it? I think that the high points were definitely very memorable ones, such as the assassination of Lord Richard, uh, when we finally got our castle. You know, th- there were there was really some points where that you know ever that everything sung and danced, so to speak. What would I have done differently? Uh, I mean, I, I would I would have tried to like some of the parts where the dungeon crawl. I would have moved that along a little faster. Aside from that. The, uh, the final ending was extremely memorable. I did not have the pleasure of getting my ass handed to me by the Eric Hulker monk before he handed his ass to me. <laughs> but I can see why he was quite the... He was really the bastard, I, I have to tell you. <laughs> so really, I mean, as, as tough as it was to deal with the Malbion, that guy was really... He was wearing a robe and staff that was dipped in pure bullshitium. Like, he's like, nope, slipped out of that. So, and while it was within the rules, I could see why the players didn't like it. Because while we were, like, slamming into the Balbion, he was taking it, like, just nothing was working on the other guy. Mm-hmm. So, I, I would have tried your final build approach, like a smaller version of him, than, than perhaps that other guy that, like, is legendarily hated. Like, he is... That party Skeletor for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, man, we, we put four years into this thing, which blows my mind still. And I think it had, as Tony said, the memorable parts were exceedingly memorable. I mean, we had characters change characters over. 
in the mid-game. We had characters enter into it. We had our high points. We had our super low points. It felt like the way a relationship is. Like I said that <laughs> earlier in the game, right? That if you're involved in, in, in gaming in a one campaign for this long, you're going to have all of it happen. The whole palette of human emotion is going to come out. And it really did. But like I said, like much to his credit, Thorne, I, I felt, really put a wonderful bow on the top of it at the end that helps you then forget about a lot of the, the, the stuff that might have pissed you off or, or bullshit stuff or whatever. Like it's still there, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel like you're putting something out of its misery. It felt more like we we finished the we fought the guy that we were supposed to fight and we helped to save the world kind of thing, you know. So, damn, putting something out of his misery. That's just call it. That's that's quite the word picture. (laughs) (laughs) I swear there were good times in there too. (laughs) Oh no, 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 no! Absolutely, 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 absolutely. There's a reason that we, you know, our first game we ever played in this, we played for oh I don't know ten hours or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, and multiple games after that, uh, especially when it was live games, you know, we were putting in six, seven, eight hours easy and, be, and, and, you know, just couldn't wait to get back to the table. So, no, wildly memorable points in this campaign. All right. So for me, there's definitely some lessons learned here. I guess even we've gone over the biggest ones, you know, just letting things get out of hand in roll 20, let it, letting, you know, kind of kind of putting out dungeon crawls where I thought, oh, we'll be through this in a night that <laughs> did not work out that way at all. Um, Christmas. but i think one of the big things i take away is you know this was really kind of a starter setting even though it was it was uh, even though we were improving it i didn't put a ton of meat into it and i would have liked to put a little more in fact other settings i've thought of since then had are are a little more a little more um they have more to them more to discover it's not some stuff that i would i would like to do now i mean players discovered stuff there were plots there were things i got into but there wasn't quite that sense of you go here and you and, and and no one knows what's going to happen. You know, there wasn't quite that sense of, oh, we can go find something cool over here. Mostly the coolness was monsters. <laughs> and most of that was because we were, you know, I was going through the using the I was I was using the monsters in the book and just seeing how they all played. And we were all getting used to getting a hang on things. And I would also say, don't let your introductory campaign go on for four years. I kind of wish we had, you know, it's not that not not that it wasn't fun. But I felt like after about two years, it started to feel a bit like this needs more. This should be a more advanced campaign now. Uh, and I, I layered some stuff in, but like, you know, clearly not all of it, you know, was was the stuff that stuck out. So that that would be, you know, my my advice would be if you're just homebrewing kind of a real quick campaign to get a start, it's great. Uh, be cognizant of how much is behind it and be cognizant of how long do you want that campaign to run for. And then, you know, you build something more advanced next time. Come up with, with new ideas that, that, that are more intricate. Because I will say, Gadanath, as cool as it was and as cool as the, as the sacrifice ability was, it's a fairly straightforward thing, right? There's not a lot of nuance to you're sacrificing or not sacrificing. You're getting bonuses or you're not getting bonuses. <laughs> it was fun. It put the party, it made the party ask some questions, caused some tension, caused some good role play. But there's more... You can you can do things with a little more subtlety to them and a little more more to explore and discover, I think, than that. So, yeah, that's probably it. This probably went on a bit longer than it should have for the depth of the actual story that was there. So that, that's that's my big takeaway. Other than that, though, I had a great time running it. You know, it was uh, you know, we, we had, it was great to get this group together. I hope to uh, start a new campaign with them relatively soon. 
Uh, we're going to do a the, the kind of a denouement uh, game, at least one, where we get to use the the other battleground that Scott made, the uh, Donoestra, uh, yeah, which, which is which is an awesome castle Scott built for them that we haven't gotten to use. <laughs> so we're going to use that for at least one adventure, uh, maybe even more than one. We'll see what we'll see what players want to do because there are still there are there are several plot lines still open that you could that you could put a bow on and there bring characters up to are. level twenty. But I just I'm really just excited about what I've heard about either Eberron or some weird Celtic campaign. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I just I've heard these things, I've heard rumors, and they excite. You don't want to see Bean get to level twenty? Yeah, it's you know over time, you know, you know <laughs> revisit little one shots here and there. You know. All right, guys. Hey, it's been, it's been, thank you very much for, for for coming on and talking about my campaign, my little my little baby, my, my four year old baby here that we just. Oh my uh, god! Right. Your little egg that almost hatched, but we stopped it. Almost, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right. You see, there there's some parallels there. Oh yeah. And thank all of you at home for listening in and I was talking about what is a homebrew campaign. Uh, so we really we tried to hit on some of the things that are different between homebrew and book and and published campaigns. If you have any other questions you want to ask about how how I did this, what I would have done differently, or how I can how you might solve problems in your homebrew campaign, please send them in. We're always looking to take reader questions. You can send them to threewisedms at gmail.com. You can go to our website threewisedms.com. We got a lot more content there. We got we got an article every week. But in addition, there's the what's your problem field. You can send us reader send us listener questions to answer. Or just interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're active in all those social media platforms. We're always looking for new stuff to talk about. And that's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Free Wise DMs.